And yes, we're still there in the great book of Judges. And I say that because I don't think there's a book of the Bible that I reference more in preaching. I could be preaching from anywhere from Matthew to Revelation, and somehow I find a way to reference uh, Judges. The first time I studied it, the first time I preached on it or had a series of messages from that uh, book, it just uh, impacted me so much that, uh, and I learned so much. There were, there's so much in there uh, to see. And, and so anyway, if you're not familiar with what we've been doing here, I suggest you just start uh, at chapter one of Judges and take a few weeks and just read through and kind of get the, the, the story and see the different uh, cycling of the people of Israel, how they got to one point and then kind of lost everything, even hope. And then they realized why they were where they were. I think they read Rick Warren's book and they got it right. And they ascended and made it, um, made everything real good for the nation. And then the next thing you know, they're slipping and sliding and away again. And so it's a tremendous book. And it is certainly a, a story of our lives. It's a story of every life. Uh, the cycles and uh, those stages that we go through. So, as I've said now, uh, I guess three times, we're we're rolling back the curtain of history. And uh, we're going all the way back to 1,400 years before Christ. And we're reading this about those times in the country. In in Judges 17, verse 6, the Bible, that's the principal theme of the whole book. And it reads, In those days Israel had no king, Every man did as they saw fit. Or another version, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Uh, That's kind of a a pretty descriptive, um, uh, you you know, picture of where America is today and where where society is today. Doesn't seem to be anybody in control. Doesn't seem to be anybody that knows how to lead or where we're going if they did lead. And, 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 And nobody seems to know what the answer is, so every man, everybody just does what's right in their own eyes, and uh, that's, a, that's a tough situation to be in. So come with me all the way back in time. Let's meet the judges. Uh, we've met a few of them. We're going to meet a couple more, uh, and this is our fourth visit into the judges, and we're going to delve into the life and times of one man of great faith, a man of valor. He was a judge com- slash commander in Israel, and one whom we can hold in high esteem, uh, and I do. We're going to start not in Judges, but just one verse of Scripture, if I can just uh, uh, extract it from the Hall of Fame, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And if you're around your Bible, in your Bible, reading your Bible, getting familiar with your Bible, uh, Hebrews 11 is a chapter you need to know. I don't mean you need to memorize it, but you need to understand what it's about. And you need to read it every once in a while, and you need to understand that there are certain people previously mentioned in Scripture, who rise to the top. And they're listed as the people of faith in Scripture. So we call it the Hall of Faith, sort of like the Hall of Fame. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, I'm reading from uh, a a newer translation probably than than you're looking at. You're probably in the NIV or something similar. But it reads something of this nature. Hebrews eleven thirty two. Well, let's just read it off. The, we can, I can read it right off the screen. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Hebrews eleven thirty two. If we could just leave that screen, 
up there for just a, a couple seconds so people can get that. Because I want you, I know there's a name in there that you, you didn't recognize, and you said, well, if I don't recognize it, I guess I'm surprised it's there. And if I don't know the person, then what are they doing there? Because I want you to meet Jephthah the Gileadite. He was the ninth judge uh, of Israel, and uh, his name means God opens, and, and if you read his life story, you'll see where that comes from. So we introduce ourselves to Jephthah the Gileadite, and now I want to fast forward to the 20th century. James J. Braddock was down on his luck. He was once a successful amateur turned professional boxer. A broken hand, stock market crash of 26 left Braddock completely destitute. He struggled every day just to put food on the table for his young family. It was awful. Then all of a sudden, James J. Braddock got a second chance. He's out of shape. He's well past his athletic prime. And Braddock was pitted against the number two contender in the world. Promoters did this because they really looked at James Braddock as nothing more than a punching bag. But we can get him a fight. He can get a little bit of money. The number two contender can move up in rank. And this will be a blowout. Then in one of the greatest upset, uh, upsets in boxing history... Braddock stunned both the experts and the fans with a third-round knockout of this formidable opponent, the number two-ranked boxer in the world. Fighting with permanent injuries to his arthritic hands, Braddock continued to win and win. And it wasn't long before he came to represent the hopes and the he became an American hero because he was kind of the aspiration of the American people coping with the Great Depression. That even while we're all losing, somebody can win. Until June the 13th, 1935, at the Madison Square Bowl in Long Island City, Queens, New York, the 30-year-old 30 30 James J. Braddock, as a ten, 30 years old, 10 to one underdog, won the heavyweight championship of the world, listen, from the seemingly invincible Max Baer. And if you've never read the story of that great German boxer, you need to. His fairy tale-like rise from a poor local fighter to the heavyweight boxing champion of the world earned James J. Braddock a nickname. From then until the end of his career and beyond, James J. Braddock was known as the Cinderella Man. You, matter of fact, you may have seen the movie by that name, starring Russell Crowe. It was directed by Ron Howard. That's about all I can tell you about it, but we have a little clip of it. So let's watch this. <clears throat> a comeback man, and he lands the first purposeful punch of the fight. Good solid hook to the body, but just doing enough. And Bear may be clowning, but Braddock knew that he got through and he's done it again. 
and realising that against all the odds, but no good doing it if you don't follow up with a decent right hand. Maybe that training injury is stopping Bear stepping in. Braddock picking him off as he comes. And Braddock maybe, as the two embrace, maybe he's pulled off one of the great comeback stories of all time. The winner and you have So the celebrations begin. Braddock's won it. Max Bear failing in his first defence. And James J. Braddock from New Jersey, aged 29 in his 84th professional fight, is champion of the world. Every time you get hit, it feels like I'm getting hit. He's old. He's arthritic. I'm sorry, Jimmy. It's over. Go home to me and the kids, Jim. Go home with what? Go home with what? They said I'm through, mate. They can't be a boxer no more. You know, to keep cutting shifts down at the docks, and you just don't get picked every day. That's it! Well, we ain't got nothing left to sell. I think we need to pack the kids. You send them away, then all of this has been for nothing. If we can't stay together, that means we lost. That means we're giving up! One fight only. Not a comeback. Looks like they dug old Jim Braddock out of retirement. Again, and then things maybe start getting serious. What are you doing? You beat this guy easy last time. Yeah, the same guy. They say the paper's getting all sorts of letters from people saying you're their inspiration. Like you saved their lives or something. You're gonna be the next champ, Jimmy! Are you scared for your husband's life? Max Bear's killed two men in the ring. It's no joke, pal. People die in fairy tales all the time. What's worth it, Jimmy? What's worth it? I have to believe I got some kind of say over our life. And when things are bad, we can do something about it. Make things better for our family. I'm always behind you. So did they. They all think the gym's fighting for them. This fight's as good as murder. First punch he lands, you'll sleep forever. You gotta beat this! You gotta beat this from the inside out! From the inside out! You, you can, can do, do it, it to me! Cinderella Man. The real reason I played that is because pretty much all my life I've been a great boxing fan. So I wanted to see that again. I don't think there, I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty safe ground to say there's never been a comeback upset victory in any sport like that of James J. Braddock in 1935. Now, folks, there's some tremendous parallels here, both in life and in literature because they're overflowing with Cinderella stories. Timeless tales about the downtrodden, the discarded, the outcasts, who eventually go from rags to riches. Whether it's Abraham Lincoln going from a log cabin to the White House, 
or even Michael Jordan, who couldn't make his high school basketball team. He was cut and went on to win six NBA championships. Just think if he'd played high school ball. This is the story of the triumphant underdog. And it's one that will always be in style because it's always more fun to root for the underdog, the little guy, isn't it? Because we love to see losers become winners. And sometimes we love to see those that think they're winners actually become losers. Well, the story of Jephthah, it's just that kind of story. Once again, we set it against the uh, backdrop of uh, Israel's oppression, foreign enemies, what else is new? By the way, bring it up 3,500 years to today, what else is new? The first episode in Jephthah's historical narrative highlight is this, if you're notating, he had a very rough start. And truth be known, Jephthah had it really, really rough. The Bible says, and we want to put this on the screen for you, in the very first verse of chapter 11, we take a look at that, 11.1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. If we could have stopped there, that would have been a nice little resume. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Who wouldn't want that as their life story to begin that way? Jephthah was what you might call an unplanned pregnancy. Jephthah was what some people might call a surprise. Jephthah's father, Gilead, was a fairly prominent member of society. Matter of fact, a very prominent. And in fact, the town was actually named after him. That region is called Gilead. Because he and his family were its pioneers, and they were also chief residents of that community. And so it was named after them. So you can imagine how scandalous it must have been after this incident took place and word got out and people repeated the story over and over. But on the bright side, Gilead did the right thing. And as I studied this a little bit further, I thought, well, I'm going to give some credit to Gilead, the father here, because he acknowledged the boy and he raised him in his own home and he raised him as his full blown son. Gilead may have been an adulterer, and was, but at least he was a responsible, caring father. The other members of Gilead's household, however, weren't quite as open and accepting, understandably. You can imagine the sibling rivalry there. Jephthah almost certainly reminded Gilead's wife of his adulterous affair, so she didn't want much to do with him, and Jephthah certainly didn't win the approval of his half-brothers and his half-sisters either. And maybe some of you come from uh, that kind of split families, and you understand some of those dynamics and some of the science that goes on there. And, and uh, you know, they chased him. In verses 2 and 3, it says they chased him out of the country because you're the son of another woman. Or they use the word prostitute in another version. They use the word whore in another version. And you will not get any of our father's estate. So Jephthah fled from his father's home and he lived in the land of Tob, T-O-B. Now honestly, let's just stop there for a minute and analyze something. Jephthah wasn't to blame for his birth. 
Jephthah had no say over who his mother was. But because of the sins of his father, Jephthah in that family became an outsider, rejected by the very people who should have given him unconditional love and acceptance. And unfortunately, there are far too many people in this world today who know how Jephthah must have felt. I've met scores of them. One thing we all need to understand is that Jephthah, though unanticipated by his parents, was not an accident. No child is an accident or an afterthought. and You aren't either. Rick Warren has well said it, and I quote, while there are illegitimate parents, there are no illegitimate children. End of quote. My friend, I'm going to tell you, your birth was no mistake. When you say, oh, I should never have been born. Oh, it would be better if I... You're absolutely 100% more, if you could be, wrong. Your birth was no accident. It was no mistake. It was, was not a mishap along the journey of life. And your life is no fluke of nature. Now, your parents may not have planned you, but God Almighty did. Your parents may not have planned you, but God Almighty did. He was not at all surprised by your birth. In fact, he didn't even need to receive a birth announcement. He expected it. And long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived in the mind of God. That's why I've never ascribed to the theory that life begins at conception. It doesn't begin at birth either. Life begins when you are conceived in the mind of God. And it's very easy to prove that scripturally. He thought of you first. It is not fate. It is not chance. It is not luck. It is not coincidence. It is not happenstance that you are breathing air at this very moment. You are alive because God wanted to create you. End of argument. You, I'm going to say that again in case you missed it, in case you don't see it on the screen. You are alive because God wanted to create you. And you, because of that, have value. Say, well, you don't, no, let's not go there. You have value. Yeah, but I messed, you have value. Yeah, but nobody seems to, you have value. You see, if you have value to God and he planned it all, then you don't really need to get your value from anybody else. You don't really need me to say, oh, by the way, you have value. Because before I even said that, you have value. You have a lot of value. And God never makes mistakes. Amen? God never makes mistakes. Matter of fact, God's never made a mistake. Unlike some of us. Some of us. I made a mistake once and Maybe you have too. I, I thought I'd made a mistake. 
He never does anything accidentally. He never does anything on a whim. He never performs anything great and anything of value just because there's nothing else to do. Here's what the Bible says in Psalm 139, one of the greatest psalms of all, verses 15 and 16. It says, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, it says, You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Love that. Jeremiah repeated that. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out for before a single day had even begun. Now, evolutionists will assert that you are the result of random chance in the universe. That gives them license to murder a million unborn babies in this country every year. That dulls the conscience. Evolution can do a lot of things once it gets God out of the picture. But faith assures that God created each, every one of us, and he did so for a reason. And he did so for a different reason for every one of our lives. Regardless of the circumstances of your your birth, regardless of who your parents are, regardless of any of that, God had a plan in creating you. Like Jephthah, you are who you are for a reason. You are part of God's intricate plan. But God's plan for Jephthah's life would not come to fruition until many years later, and we read about it in uh, verse 4 of chapter 11, where the people of Ammon made war against Israel. There's trouble in the camp. We need help. So the next exciting, after the rough start, the next exciting phase or period of Jephthah's life centers on his becoming no less than the commander-in-chief. Though living apart from the rest of society, because remember his family, his, his half-brothers and sisters and, and his stepmother, if you will, they had nothing to do with him. And, and they just drove him out of the home, out of the community, out of the country. And he's, he's gone. He's, he's abandoned that society. And Jephthah developed quite a rep- reputation as a mighty man of valor, or as we read, a great warrior. Huh? And... and uh, in, in uh, verse 3, the Bible says he had quite a band of malcontents as his followers. They were living off the land as bandits, kind of like Robin Hood and his gang. Apparently, Jephthah's reputation and prowess as a warrior attract, attracted other rejects and lowlifes, and the New Living Translation calls them worthless rebels. See, so you're, you're pretty much sinking down there to a whole new depth when you're known around the country as a worthless rebel. And these worthless rebels just followed him into the desert or wherever he might choose to go. And Jephthah's popularity was on the rise. He led this band of misfits on raids of enemy territory. And they took what they needed and they lived almost like outlaws in the Old West used to live. And as his following grew, so did word of his 
exploits grow and spread of all these daring adventures that they undertook. And as that grew, Jephthah caught the attention of the elders of his old hometown. Ah, ah. And verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11 says, When the Ammonites attacked, the elders of Gilead sent for Jephthah in the land of Nob. And the elders said, Come and be our commander. Help us fight the Ammonites. Now that rejected Jephthah is pretty popular. And now we're going to see some use and some purpose for this man's life. Jephthah was understandably hesitant. I think his response to the elders was a little bit, if not a lot, sarcastic. Because you see it in verse 7, and he says, Aren't you the ones who hated me and drove me right out from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? I love that. And then in verse 8, here's their response. Because we need you. And if you lead us into battle against the Ammonites, we'll make you ruler over all the people of Gilead. Wow. So after getting their word, that's sort of like, if you give my super PAC a half a million dollars, I'll become your vice presidential pick. I mean, it's the same idea. It's called quid pro quo. You give me something, I'll give you something. I get something, I'll be something for you. I'm not for sale, but you can buy me. And I just want to give my disclaimer here. I can say that because I've been in those situations, not offered a million dollars or offering to pay anybody a half a million dollars, but it's a tough world right there. So after getting their word that he's going to be given total discretion and, and leadership ability here to do as he sees fit as the new leader, Jephthah accepts the offer. And he's appointed Gilead's new commander-in-chief. Now, it is Jephthah's leadership style that really sets him apart from any of the Israel's previous commanding officers. Upon taking control of Israel's army, he sends a letter to the king of the Ammonites. And in the letter, verse 12, he says, What have you got against Israel? Why have you come to attack our land? I want you to notice this discourse because it's really interesting and it really jumped out at me. The correspondence probably caught the king off guard, but the Ammonite king replied, verse 13, you can just keep following down, thumbnail sketch it. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they stole my land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River and all the way to the Jordan. Now then, give back the land peaceably. And I thought to myself, does this sound like today's Israeli-Palestinian conflict or what? People invading God-given land that belongs to the Israelites and the Israelites fighting to defend it and the people coming back to take it and say, give us our land. Jephthah crafted a well-thought-out in a very thorough response to the king's demands. His response contained three primary responses within. First, he says that when Israel first came to the borders of the Ammonite king, they had requested permission to cross his land. But the king at the time refused their request, and he mounted his troops for battle. In other words, the Ammonites were the ones who started the fight that resulted in the loss of their land. 
Not the Israelites. The Ammonites. Furthermore, secondly, Jephthah said, down in verse 24, God gave Israel the victory and the land. He said, you keep whatever your God, Chemosh, uh, gives you, whatever he gives you. And I'll tell you what, we'll keep whatever the Lord our God gives us. I love that response. I wish Prime Minister Netanyahu would, would use that in a speech. And then third and finally, Jephthah points out that the Israelites have inhabited the land now, get this, for over 300 years. Yet none of the previous Ammonite kings have made any claim on that land. No, not until now. So unfortunately, Jephthah's arguments fell on deaf ears, but the point is this, and I want to make it. Jephthah wasn't looking to pick a fight. He didn't want to go to war. He, he was a mighty man of valor, and he was a great warrior, but he didn't want to just, you know, drop the gauntlet and go to war and let's get this thing done. That's not the kind of thing that motivated him. He was very diplomatic. He was very peaceful in his approach, and he would have much rather settled the differences without war if that were possible. Even though he was a mighty warrior, you can put this in your notes, he was also a peacemaker at heart. Now, what can we learn from this part of the story? Well, we can learn that there are two kinds of people. First are the thermometer people. And secondly, there are the thermostat people. Now, a thermometer person simply reflects the climate of the room. The room is cold, it's cold. The room is hot, like this one is, it's hot. I thank you, Lord, that we're turning the heat off. I don't think I could preach another sermon under this. But a thermostat can change the climate of the room. By adjusting its setting, a thermostat can change a cold room into one that is warm or a hot room into one that is cool. So a peacemaker like Jephthah is a thermostat person because a peacemaker can change the whole climate of a room when he or, or she walks in. You ever seen that happen? If any of you ever came up in any of the type of churches that I did, you, you've probably seen it happen plenty, but have you ever been in a room where everybody's negative? Well, Bob, they weren't really negative. They were just complaining. Well, they weren't really complainers. They just liked to argue. Yeah, I've been in too many of those rooms. Thank you. Someone not too long ago asked Todd and me if, um, if we had, like, committees in this church. And I said, no, we like peace too much. Yeah. So, you, you have this room, and it's full of negative, nitpicking, complaining, argumentative people. Then a peacemaking person walks in... And may just make one statement, may just say one thing close to what some of the, the negative, critical, cynical people have said, but, but not exactly the same way and in a much better tone. 
and takes it a little bit further. And all of a sudden, you can almost read it on the countenance of some of the people gathered, and you can hear it being whispered around the room. Gee, I never thought of it like that before. I never thought that. And what happens? The whole climate changes. God desires peacemakers in his church, in the home, in the family, at the workplace, and in the world. Jesus once said, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The Apostle Paul over in Romans 12, verse 18 said, and, and these are encouraging words, I think. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone or with all men. Have you ever walked out of situations like I described a few moments ago? Yeah, I have. I'll just speak for myself. And when asked why, I've said because it's not possible. Thank you, Paul, for giving me that out. He said, if at all possible, live at peace with all men. Some people just can't stand peace. My mother used to say they're enjoying their misery. Boy, how right she was. Regrettably, in Jephthah's case, it didn't depend solely on him. It wasn't possible. It wasn't possible. He'd made an overture to the king. He'd explained his situation. He, he knew that his people had been sitting on that land for 300 years. He knew that it was rightfully theirs. So it wasn't possible to just say, okay, y'all come in, take it over. So he and his soldiers suited up, and they prepared for war. Now, here's the final takeaway in Jephthah's life and story. And I tell you, it has to be this. It's the man's character. And we slide all the way down to verse 29, and we read through 29, 30, and 31. The Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah as he marched his troops through the dry, dusty land of Gilead and Manasseh toward the Ammonite border. But before sounding the charge... Jephthah made a solemn promise to God. He prayed, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it, offer it up for a burnt offering. Remember, and this is so pertinent to this story. You might even lose the whole meaning of the story or anything that I've tried to say this morning if you missed this comment. Jephthah was not commissioned by God. He wasn't ordered by God to be the commander-in-chief of this army. He was commissioned by the elders of Gilead. And when he said, why do you need me? I mean, I was no good a few years ago, and you kicked me out of your home. You kicked me out of your community. You drove me out of the, out of the country. Now you, need, now you want me. Why? Because we need you. We've heard of your military exploits, and we've heard of your mighty valor, and now we need someone to lead us. 
wouldn't have been so much nicer if they'd have said, we've been on our face before God, and we've offered burnt sacrifices, and we've come to him in prayer, and he's made it very clear that you're the man, and we're telling you what God told us. It would have been nice if that would have been the commission, but it wasn't. He wasn't commissioned by God. He was searched for and commissioned by the elders of Gilead. Now, I'm not saying Jephthah wasn't a man of faith, because he was. He was a man of great faith, I think. Huge faith in God. And I can point this out in just a moment. But he needed to know that God was in this thing. That God was with him. That God was superimposed over that army and all of the military plan before him. Which, of course, if you know the rest of the story, God was. God heard Jephthah's prayer. He heard Jephthah's promise. And he gave him an absolutely devastating victory over the Ammonites. Now, after the battle was won, and Jephthah had returned home in victory as a hero, he remembered his promise to the Lord. And I think his heart kind of sank into his stomach. Because who should come bouncing out to greet him but his own daughter? In verse 34, the Bible says, when Jephthah returned home, his daughter, his only child, ran out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. When he saw her, his heart broke, no doubt. Yet his daughter, with a sweet and tender tone, encouraged him. Down verse 36 and 37, you can... Hear the encouragement when she finds out what is entailed here, what's in this story. And Father, she said, you must do whatever you promised the Lord, for he's given you a great victory over our enemies, the Ammonites. But first, Father, let me go up into the hills. Let me roam with my girlfriends for two months, just weeping because I will never marry. Jephthah did as she requested and then he kept his vow to God. Now stay with me. I don't know in, in theological circles if there is another incident that compares to this little incident because this has stirred more theological controversy than anything I know of. Scholars have argued for centuries about whether or not Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter. Some believe that he did. Others don't believe that. I'm one of the latter. And here's why. First, Jephthah has already proven himself to be an intelligent and educated man. He's very well versed in Hebrew history and in God's law. So undoubtedly he knew that God had already declared human sacrifice as abomination actually detestable in God's sight. You can find that in Leviticus 18, 21. Secondly, Jephthah Jeff, uh, surely knew that the Lord would only accept sacrifices on the altar of the tabernacle, and that was the only place where a sacrifice to God could be made and honored. He also knew that only a priest could perform such a sacrifice, and no Levitical priest would have ever allowed a human sacrifice to desecrate the altar of the Lord. And thirdly, 
Jephthah's daughter requests time to mourn the fact that she will never marry. Not the fact that she was about to die. In fact, the Bible is quick to point out in verse 39, if we keep going, the Bible just keeps confirming itself. The more you read it, and that's why I encourage you to read it. Jephthah did to her what he had promised. Jephthah's daughter never had a husband. Another version of Scripture says, and she was a virgin. Now, the little Hebrew word translated up in verse 31 of chapter 11, that word and is very important. Because in the Hebrew, that word can also be translated or. You ever, ever write something or speak to someone and you were, you were going along and you wanted to kind of include two things and you say and or? That's where we got that idea from. It's from Hebrew scholarship. In other words, a twofold promise. Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me shall be the Lord's or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. See, Jephthah didn't make a foolish, thoughtless promise. He knew full well that a person, probably a slave, was likely to greet him. That's why he said, whatever comes out of my house, not out of my barn, out of my house. Had an animal greeted him, maybe he would have offered it as a burnt offering. If a person greeted him, he would just simply give that person to God. That is, he would have dedicated them to a life of temple service and celibacy. And that was a very common practice in ancient Israel. As we're going to learn in not too many weeks, that Samson's mother did a similar thing and makes a similar promise to God. Jephthah's only daughter would never marry. She would never know the joy of motherhood. She would never bear a child to carry on Jephthah's family name. And that's very important in the Jewish lineage. What's important here, notice, is that even though it broke his heart, Jephthah was a man of his word. We find that in verse 35. He said, I made a promise to the Lord, and I cannot break it. You can call it anything you want. I call that the man's character. That's the real man. That's the soul of the man. That's the essence of Jephthah. I made a promise to the Lord, and I cannot break it. Now it's teachable time, folks, if you'll just bear with me. God always expects his people to be men and women of their word. In Matthew 5, 37, Jesus said, just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Your word is enough. That's your bond. I don't recommend making open-ended promises, especially to God, because those are going to come back to you, probably stronger than the way you made them. But it is important that we always keep the promises that we do make. If you say, I'll be there, then be there. And I'll throw in a little parenthesis just for humor's sake. Don't just sign up. And again, we still lead the world in 
sign-ups for all churches. But if you, if you sign up and say, I'm going to be there, be there. That's your word. If you say, ah, don't worry about it, I'll do it. Then do it. Oh, I'll live by this promise I've made. I'll live by this vow I made. I'll do that. Well, then do it. People are breaking vows faster than I could even say that sentence in our world today. It just means nothing. God wants men and women of character, and nothing demonstrates your character more than your ability to keep your word. Say, well, it's been tough, it's been difficult, I don't see other people. That has nothing to do with you or your situation. You either keep your word or you don't. It's about character. And Jephthah says, look, I made a promise to God and I cannot break it. You find a few more people in Scripture that made statements like that. I'd like to preach on them too, but I don't think you'll find many. Jephthah's Cinderella-like journey from zero to hero was only possible through faith. Faith means realizing that God made each one of us special and unique and that he has a plan for our lives. And usually, if I can just say that in love, it's not usually our plan. Has anybody else beside me ever found that out in life? Live long enough and you will. You're already right today making all these plans. You got this, you got that, you got something else. Is it God's plan? He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. You didn't just need Rick Warren to come on the scene and say that. That's an absolute. That's a biblical truth. That's an eternal verity. And that journey of Jephthah from zero to here was only possible through faith. And faith means you realize that God made you special. He gave you value. You are unique to him and to the world, and he has a plan for your life. We worry, and we spend, and I do too, spend so much time making the, my own plan or an alternate plan or something else that I think will work when God already has a plan for my life. It means learning to live in peace with other people. It means as much as we possibly can Romans 12, 18, and it means being willing to make the big sacrifices when God calls us to do so. In reality, each of us has our own Cinderella story then. We were all once poor, pit what do you said, what do you mean once? Pitiful, pathetic. <laughs> Come on, be honest. We were apart from God. Maybe didn't even have a God consciousness at that time, but then Thank you, Jesus. By the grace of God, through faith, God reached out and transformed each of us, I hope, into heirs of an eternal kingdom. We went from filthy rags to eternal riches. What a plan. And here's what I want so desperately to leave with you today. And I'd ask you to hear this out. Do not give up what you want most for what you want now.
You could take that home and ruminate on that. That could change the course of your life. Oh, I know, you have needs. Oh, I know, if I only had this, if I could only do that, if I could only get out of this, if I could only... I guess, I don't know how else to say it. I'm just going to say it one more time. Do not give up what you want most for what you want now. And here's how you start to do that. Commit to live for Christ. Comes with a commitment. Surrender to his will. You say, well, I did that once. Good. So you know how to do it. And then follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Or, perhaps you're here, and this is a little foreign to you, so you need to turn your control of your life today over to Jesus. And say, I come to you as a hopeless, helpless sinner, lost and undone, looking for reality, looking for something that can be the cement foundation of my life, and something that can give me assurance, then I ask you to accept him as your Savior today and secure or claim a place in his eternal home. And learn of and love and live for your Savior, your only hope for eternal life, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And then rise up and be the Cinderella man or Cinderella woman that God wants you to be today. Can I just take a minute and thank you for your attention? and your interest. I'm completely devoid of energy, mental ability, <laughs> and anything else it takes to stand before you this morning, and I don't need to get into all that. That's just me. It's not give him all the glory. But thank you for being interested. Thank you for trying to learn. Thank you for listening, not to me, but to the voice of God speaking to you. And I ask you one more time, if you need him, if you really need help, if you really need deliverance, if you really need to get out of that situation you're in or out of that mess you're in or out of that life you're in, just going around and round and round. My last words are yield to Jesus right now. And before you leave here today, tell somebody about it. Because, bottom line, I love you. I love you. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that when we're weak, you're strong. When we seem to be in a fog, your light, your searchlight is clearly seen and easily followed if we'll just cast our eyes upon you. Lord, as we come to you with sin, disappointment, defeat, discouragement, doubt, we have a hard time even listening to the words because we know if we listen very carefully, we'll have to start believing them. Lord, take away that outside influence, that satanic influence that wants to intercept every thought, every word, every deed, turn it around, make it something it isn't, and cause us to doubt even more. 
Help us to be believers of the word. Help us to be hearers of the word. Help us to be searchers of the word. And most of all, help us to be doers of your word. Lord, we yield to you. We surrender to your will. We ask for your direction. And we pray for salvation for those who need you most. Those that are struggling today, those that are trying to find their way through this maze of life, I pray, Lord, they'll quit looking at the next road sign and look up from whence comes their help. Because we know that our help comes from you. Have your way in every heart, we pray. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,